Good Evans, it's a Bobcast. Welcome to episode nine. I'm your host, Bob Evans. They also call me Kevin Mitchell from time to time, amongst other things. How are you going? Welcome. Welcome, welcome back if you've been enjoying the Bobcast. Um, and welcome if this is your first Bobcast. Come on in, make yourself at home. We're all friends here. Um, I'm going to try and keep my intro really short. I'm not going to plug stuff, I'm just going to get straight into it because I don't want anybody getting too bored. Uh, so episode number nine, it's a good one. It's with my old friend Josh Pike. We've been uh, mates for a while. We talk about our friendship in this uh, Bobcast. I I travelled up to Sydney just the other week and stayed at his place for a few days. We worked on some things. Now it's all top secret, so I can't re- give you any details about what that is. But we will be making an official announcement in a few days um, from from the time which you are probably hearing this. Um, so, yes, very exciting stuff. Tune, stay tuned in. Well, you know, Facebook and all that sort of stuff to find out what I'm talking about or not talking about. Anyway, it's a really great chat. I had a lot of fun. Um, if you've been enjoying the Bobcast, please rate and review it on iTunes. I would really, really appreciate that. Uh, as usual, there is lots of explicit language and, and the rest. Um, so if that offends you, be warned. It's coming up. All right, I hope you enjoy it. Episode 9 of Good Evans, It's a Bobcast. Welcome to the Bobcast, my good mate Josh Pike. How you going? I'm good. I just I like hearing your podcast voice. Yeah, well, okay. So we were talking about that before, and um, I didn't realise I had a podcast voice. Yeah, you got. You, it's like it's like a little switch that gets turned on. What happens? Like, what happens to my voice? Um, in your normal life, you're a lot less animated. You're like right. You're, and then as soon as the podcast switch goes on, you're like, Hey guys, how right. you going? Yeah. Okay. You're still doing it. You can't stop doing well, it. Well, that's right. I mean, I can't. Uh, I, like, I actually like this version of you better. Than, really? Yeah. You're Maybe like, like every time we hang out, we should just have a microphone on yeah. and then, yeah. You're like, you're heaps, you seem more positive about, you know, stuff, including me now that you're doing the podcast. Well, that kind of, to me, that kind of raises a question about, you know, when a microphone's <laughs> on as performers, you wow. know, like when you go on stage... What, what elements of your personality become amplified, you know, as a performer? Yeah, definitely my smart artery becomes amplified. <laughs> definitely, definitely. That's I feel a like... Frightening prospect. Yeah, well, I feel like years of being a smart ass have trained me to be a, a good, quick performer, like a quick-witted yeah. performer in terms of being able to handle um, banter with the audience and, you know, potentially handle, um, you know, heckling and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's like years of being a smart ass, which is based on years of being defensive as a, <laughs> as a person. What about when you first started playing gigs? How, like how, how did you, uh, deal with that aspect of, you know, performing to a crowd, especially, you know, because, well, I guess you started off kind of playing in a band, didn't you, before you were doing solo stuff? Yeah. I mean, I was in a band for a number of years, about seven or eight years before, you know, before I started going solo and, 
But in that, that band, band was called an empty flight. An empty, oh yeah. First we were called Floam, and then we were called Flo-em. an empty flight. Yeah. And we're talking. What, let's talk us through a little bit about that history. You know. What- oh, that's like. Uh, so we we were in a band throughout high school, and then we after high school we tried to take it seriously. So it was like from you know ninety ninety five until really two thousand and five was when things started kicking off for me in terms of solo land, and and sort of three of those years before 2005 were me struggling as a solo artist. So it was right. it was a solid eight years. Was Empty Flight still going while you started doing the solo stuff? Or no, was it was sort of, a- it was consecutively, it was at the same time that an Empty Flight was disappearing. Right. My, my solo star <laughs> was beginning to rise. It was on the ascent. Yes. Well, basically what <laughs> happened was one of the guys in the band decided to quit the band. Right. And he was like, you know, I want you guys to stop being a band and we're like no way we're going to do another EP. hang on so he's he didn't want to be in the band anymore and he also didn't want the band to continue without him yeah which i mean in retrospect and you know you being in in a band as well it's like it's the sum of the parts you know like yeah and so it was we were a band of brothers and and then when he didn't want to do it anymore he kind of assumed that everybody else would not want to do it right, as well and right. but the rest of us were like well we want to do it still so so we kept on going for another kind of year or year or two and in that time, I had also started to demo some solo stuff, mm-hmm. and I had like a you know a shitty little cassette-based four-track recorder Yamaha at home. Yeah, um, and I so that was like what I recorded "Kids Don't Sell a Hope So Fast" on and stuff like that. And then I took that up a notch and went to a studio above a pub in Balmain. And while when I did that, I sent the demos of that out. But at the same time, I sent the demos of my our most recent recordings with an empty flight right. to the same manager. And that manager said, really like an empty flight. You know, I've seen you guys been doing stuff for a while, but I want to manage you as a solo right. artist. And so yeah. I had to make that decision then. Wow. So that was the the kind of impetus. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Excuse me, just drinking. Yeah, no, beer. no, please do. Um, the, the listeners will be used to hearing people drinking during this podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, that was, a, so it was very much like a, a kind of line in the sand. And, and mm. I got that, given that opportunity and I went to the guys that were left in the band and I said, you know, I've, this opportunity's come up, but I'd quit uni. Like I didn't have any plan B. I'd quit uni. I was trying to pursue music, but those guys were still in uni. And um, and I was like, look, I want to do this and I, I would love you guys to be in, in the band for my solo stuff. Right. But it's gotta be. It's, it's gotta be, be my thing. Things are gonna be different, yeah. and that's a tough thing, isn't oh, it? Oh, they were legends. Though. I mean, they're still, you know, two of my best so friends. So how? So what did they say? What? They were like, "Cool, let's do it," you know. And they were really supportive, and they played in my band for, you know, as a, as backup musicians for wow. a couple of years until it just wasn't viable anymore. Right. You know, like I paid them as much as I could, but yeah. it was like, you know, petrol money kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And then they eventually just, you know went back to uni and finished their degrees and became successful members of society. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're probably all rich. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really. So yeah. you're still mates? Absolutely, yeah. yeah I saw yeah. them, you know, just last weekend. Um, and so you've started doing the solo stuff and that was probably, you know, soon after that that we first yeah, crossed yeah. paths. Yeah. Um, I remember first meeting you in 2003. Really? Was it that early? I think it was 2003. That was the where you played a show with me at the Brass Monkey in Cronulla. And, and you you and your manager drove me to the oh, gig. Oh, that's right. Remember? Yes, I do yeah, remember yeah. that. Yeah. And we and and we got like 
absolutely fucking hammered and we drove home. Well, oh, we, well, we got, I mean, you know. I'm, we, we got driven home and we were just... just another night out for me, Josh. <laughs> I remember though, because I was, I was very excited. And as I've had to admit to you over the years, um, I was a huge and still am a huge Jebediah fan. <laughs> well, I want to explore that later. But... <laughs> um, so like I was super stoked to do that gig and, you know, kind of, you know, yeah, pretty pretty uh, overwhelmed by meeting one of my musical heroes. So I, I, I was staying at Simon Day's place. Yeah, and even that, I remember that. Even that was blowing my mind. I was like, what? Cause <laughs> and Rat you Cat- guys came and picked me up from this yeah, place yeah. in Surrey Hills. Uh, like, So I just put out my very first solo record and it was a pretty small time affair. It was and, a minor um, hit. It was a minor hit. There was no hit. It was minor without the hit. Um, there was no hit attached to that record whatsoever, but it was kind of my first foray into into. So I mean, we were kind of in a pretty similar, yeah, except that, similar position except that you'd had a, yeah, except that you'd had a, I, a successful ten year career a, before that. Yeah. But but the thing was, so I had, I was working in a record store in Balmain, and yep. we listened to the first Bob record all the time, and I was like, yeah, this is really fucking cool. And then I got the call about doing that show. So I was super excited and I just remember we played the show and because I was a bit, and this happens when I get a bit overexcited, I drink more than I should. That's, I think that's probably a fairly common <laughs> And then we, common we got a lift back to Sydney from my manager. Yeah. And we were just like massively singing like old golden oldies. Like yeah, I remember yeah. we were listening to Gold FM or something on the way yeah, home. Yeah. And I remember a similar thing happened after we did that Bob Dylan show after at Splendor. And we got a lift back to our hotel by the promoter. Do you remember that? And we just sat, you and oh, I. Oh, yeah, yeah, You yeah. and I got the lift back and we just sat yeah. in the back just massively singing Golden Oldies. Singing Golden Oldies. And, you know, that probably says a lot about us. As... Well, it's, <laughs> we're, 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 we are officially Golden Oldies. <laughs> so, I mean, seeing as though, you know, this conversation has gone down to, you know, to explaining your career, let's keep going along that. All so, right, okay. So we've... You've you've had that life changing experience of meeting me and playing with me. <laughs> <laughs> what happened after that? So well, it, was, it, was like... down, it was all downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so that was in two thousand and three, and it would have been fairly shortly after that that you started again playing the radio and yeah. So it was like so basically two thousand and three, two thousand and four. I d- I d- had done kids don't sell their hope so fast, and I got and I just sent it in as a demo to Triple J, and it just got picked up on high rotation. It was one of those little mini phenomenons and you know and i remember like just going like okay this is real and i and i just and it must was, have been a pretty it was it was amazing it, it was amazing to the point where like i remember my mother asked me she was like how does it feel and i was like yeah wow and i and i literally said and it makes me very sad to think back about my past self to say this but i was like wow so this is what being happy feels like you know wow because it had been such a long time wow. like anybody in a band knows like you just feel like you're smashing your head against the wall when it's not going wow. well so I was like, wow, this is this could be something finally. Like this I pinned all my hopes on this dream. I'd quit uni. I didn't have any other qualifications, no plan B. So I was like, this could this could work. And so I was determined to make this opportunity work. Yeah. And I was determined to just You know, and which in itself, you know, there's a lot of people in that same boat that wouldn't necessarily have that same attitude or mindset about Well, I think it's because I was older, you know. It's because yeah. I was I was twenty five, twenty six by that point. Yeah. Almost ten years into you know, being a musician. Yeah, into, uh, 10 years into being a struggling musician. Yeah. You know, and I'd had various setbacks of like having cool jobs and then being made redundant. And, you know, at, at, one, at, at a certain point, I was like, I, I want to be a musician. I've tried all these other things. This is what I want to do. And so I, I just kind of drew that line in the sand. You worked at a publishing company for a bit, didn't you? 
I worked for EMI Publishing for almost a year. Um, when when was that? Person. Uh, that would have been two two years before I met you, so like 2001 right. or something like that. Explain publishing to people because, you know, I even as a as a career musician, a sometimes I still musician. I still struggle to. Uh, well, it's basically you know on a with any song, there's two sides of the coin. There's the publishing side, which is like the intellectual property of the song, and then there's the the actual recording of the song, which is like known as the masters. So, you know, in terms of you know exploiting a song in in inverted commas in the good sense of the word of exploit <laughs> exploitation, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you get. The song, once you've written a song, it doesn't matter how many times it's recorded in how many different formats, whoever wrote that song originally owns that song. So that's where sampling and stuff like that comes in. So publishing, um, is it, is it, are you doing a we or is that just you pouring a drink? Oh no, I'm just pouring a wine. (laughs) But please go on. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Just doing a little cheeky we in a bottle down there. yeah, so publishing is a it's a it's a pretty interesting place to be really in terms of intellectual property and copyright and stuff like that. I I I'm still pretty passionate about that mm. that area. So it was interesting and it was and it was stimulating and it was a big step up for me. But it was also incredibly frustrating because I wanted to be the person writing the songs. I didn't want to be the person mm. pitching the songs to other pe- people and artists and working out other people's recording schedules and stuff. I wanted to be the person you know, I wanted to be a professional musician. How did you get the job at publishing? Um, so there's a guy called Craig Hawker who you you know well. Yes. Um, so Craig is a really successful music industry guy. Um, he's currently you know the sort of one of the top guys at Sony Publishing. But pre- prior to that, he was worked for EMI Records. Craig and I met when I was about 19. He's one of these self-starter guys that grew up on in Cairns and up in Far North Queensland. Mm. Uh, but he wanted to be in music. He was one of these guys that like had started websites when people were still meeting in like chat rooms and all that kind of stuff. Right, yeah, yeah. And he he um, eventually got himself a gig at uh, Sony Records and then finally EMI Records. Mm. But this is when he was 18. He's a couple mm. of years younger than me. Well, I remember Craig as a pretty much a work experience kid yeah. at the Murmur office. So everyone knew of him as the guy from, um, what's the movie, uh, Almost Famous? Yes, he looks, you know, for the, for he doesn't the, the anymore, listeners... But- out there, he does look. You know who else he looks like is Ben Queller, and absolutely. Just a, a I've, I've actually, I have a photo of <laughs> of me and my wife in between Ben Queller and Craig Hawker at the Arias because they just look so much alike. So, was it, okay, it was going off on a tangent, but um, some 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 Craig Hawker Ben Queller stories here. Okay, so Jeb and I were playing this gig in Sydney once, and um. Uh, and Luke, my Luke Steele, uh, who you would know from uh, Empire of the Sun and Sleepy Jackson, was at the gig. And I'm oh, sorry, and Craig Hawker was also at the show. So anyway, <laughs> there was a review written <laughs> in the local this. street press yeah. the week after the show. And, it, and in the review, the writer said, you know, so, uh, celebrities were spotted in the crowd. Uh, Luke Steele was seen with Ben Queller. <laughs> yeah. um, and then like maybe probably about two, three, maybe even longer, four years after that, I was playing West Coast Blues and Roots Festival doing Bob Evans and um, so was Ben Queller and we were on the same flight to Perth. From We both played in Adelaide or somewhere they're not for. And, and when we got off the plane, we got chatting and uh, and I told, I got to tell Ben Queller about this guy. I know I knew Craig Hawker and he was like, oh yeah, I know that guy. Yeah. I got the feeling that like for years he'd been told about this yeah, 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 Australian sure. guy. Well, I, I told him about it. So I did it. One of my first UK tours was a six-week 
tour with Ben oh, Quella. Oh, that's right. Of and course. And we were, we were sharing a tour bus. Yes. So like we were sleeping on the bus and that's everything. That's right. And, um, and I, so I got to know him quite well in that yeah. period. Um, such a great guy, right? Oh, he's a legend. Yeah. I, I mean, I in no way have stayed in touch, but he was such a... I, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to keep track of what we're actually talking about, but it's he, Ben Quella and you actually were the two professional musicians that actually encouraged, like taught me that you could have a relationship and be a successful musician. Right. So what do you... So So, so when I met you, you were already with your wife. You weren't married. And I had just met my now wife. And everybody was telling me, you can't be a successful musician having a, su- a successful relationship. To the point where like when I originally got signed to Island Records in the in for UK and Europe, this is this huge deal. Yeah, well, um, it is a big deal. Yeah, well, the guy like flew out to Australia. He was the guy that signed Coldplay and everything. And he flew out to Australia and he, you know, wined and dined me for a week, you know. Amazing. And I was like, fuck, this is amazing. Like, what, yeah. how is this happening? He just, he'd randomly heard um, Feeding the Wolves EP, fell in love with gold mines, flew out to Australia, signed me for UK and Europe. Yeah. Um, you know, big advance. It was all this classic, Incredible. like, dream stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, and I remember he took me out to dinner to, to Ari or something, you know, like a big fancy restaurant. It was just me and him. And he, he you know, in retrospect, I was 20. Six, twenty-seven at the time. Uh, he was, you know, probably only thirty-three. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. But he was saying to me like, "So, you know, are you willing to do what it takes? You know, I mean, you've got wow. this girlfriend. How serious is it? Wow. You know, are you willing to do?" And I was like, in my mind, I was like, "Who the fuck is this that's, guy?" Yeah, that's questioning me and my relationship. I'm almost like I'm twenty-seven years old. And also, like, in what kind of job is that? Oh well, it, normal that's, to like. That's the say, thing about the music industry. There's so many things about it. <laughs> Contractually and otherwise, that are just completely abnormal in, in you know the realms of normal business. And I guess he, yeah, you're right. And I guess he would have just been testing you out, probably because maybe he'd had a bad experience. Yeah, but also, I mean, in in sort of you know in my more charitable moments, I understand that he he is about to invest a couple yeah, of hundred yeah. grand into a project where his ass is going to be on the line if it yeah. doesn't work. So, and I was just saying, I just was in my mind, I was like. I just, I'm going to say whatever it takes to, exactly. to get this across the line. I was like, yeah, look, we're all, it's all good. She knows the deal. It's fine. Um, and, and that is actually the truth. Otherwise we wouldn't, mm. we married, you know, 10 years later. But, um, but I just remember thinking like, this is so personal. Like wow. any yeah. other, I mean, it was essentially a job interview. Yeah. There's no other job interview where, the, where your potential boss is going to question your commitment yeah. to your partner like in reference in, in relation as to a how negative commit, yeah as a as negative, a negative to it, your it, ability to work exactly yeah. and so I, I just found it very confronting because i you know i'd have a million jobs by that point um but so i was kind of in this environment you know in music where i was realizing that people within the industry kind of frowned upon people in relationships and i met you and you had this great relationship and i met queller and on that tour that i did in the uk he had his wife, Liz, and yeah. his his first son. Uh, I can't remember his name at the moment, but um, uh, what was it? It's probably like Leaf or something. No, no it was something. It was something <laughs> interesting. <laughs> I can't remember what it was. Uh, I remember you telling me about that. Yeah. I think it was Quelly. Sounded Quelly. really Quelly Quella. Quelly Quella. Quella. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he had his kid and and wife on the tour bus, yeah. and it was beautiful. And I was kind of like, no, this is totally fine. You know, you get to a point and you can. You don't need to answer to these people who are trying to like control every aspect of your life, including your relationships. I mean, that is that's confronting stuff. Yeah, you know? it is, it, yeah. and it made me query whether or not this is actually an industry that I wanted to wow. enter into. And so that was 
after that EP, Feeding the Wolves, before you made your first record? Because you were making that first album for a little while by memory. Like you were... Uh, it was... There yeah, was a, I guess there it was, was a long lead up to that. Record. Yeah, there was a long lead up, I guess, because what what we did was I'd had Kids Don't Sell a Hope So Fast had done well on Triple J, and then I still wasn't signed, and I did an independent single, which was the Doldrums, and that also got smashed on Triple J, and I was and it was all going well, and it was basically based on the on the back of those two singles that I got signed to Ivy League, and then Ivy League, um, I, I did have enough songs for an album, but they wanted to do a kind of introductory mini album thing, which was. Mm great it was mm. worked really well it was kind of like um you know it wasn't an ep it was i think it was eight songs or something like that so it was, it was nobody was really doing mini albums at that time so it was a little point of difference mm. so we did that and that had middle of the hill on it and then when we did memories and dust we released middle of the hill on that as well because it had done really well yeah so i guess there was kind of two years in between you know releasing feeding the wolves and releasing Memories and Dust, which yeah. is, you know, I, I mean, that has essentially been my pattern ever since. It's been an album every two years. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Memories and Dust was, you know, it was, it, was, it was a bit of a hodgepodge of recording like we did it in various studios. And yeah, yeah. Tiny budget. And, but yeah, it was good. Yeah. Um, I want to, if we can, go back. You know, we've known each other for a while, but I don't know that I know all that much about like your early childhood so i i guess my question is what's your first memory of, of being really affected by music i was definitely always i was a pretty like kind of um emotionally responsive kid you know what i mean i wasn't i was quite a uh, it's hard to explain but i guess a good example of what i'm talking about is is my first experience my first memory of music it was the song that i eventually did a cover of on my first like a version on triple j which was House at Pooh Corner, right? And yeah. so this this is a song that Kenny Loggins wrote and recorded with his with the band Nitty Nitty Gritty, Nitty Dirt, Gritty Dirt Band, Dirt right? Band yeah. So it's a super like lame '80s yeah, country yeah. version. But I, my parents had that song, and I just remember sitting on the steps and I remember listening to it and and listening to the song and just bursting into tears. Wow! How and old I, were you? I can't I I can't really I can't remember. I think I, I must have been maybe seven or eight or something yeah. like that. And I'd had I'd had experiences with music before that, like the theme song from The Greatest American Hero really oh, used yes. to drive me crazy. Me and also from Flash Gordon, the um the theme song from that. So I remember like I remember music eliciting a response in me mm. that was above and beyond anything else. Like I wasn't interested in sport or anything yeah. like that. It was like but when I heard certain songs it would just So at drive seven, me wild, what was it you know? about that song? Do you think? I, well, I remember empathizing with the idea of like um, which is ironic because I was seven, but I remember empathizing with the idea of lost youth, you know, like wow. of, of of this idea that this, I, I got it, you know, like I remember getting it. I remember getting how, and I remember getting how the, the lyrics were reflecting or the, the music was reflecting the lyrics, you know, and how the, the sort of, hmm. you know, it was sort of joyous at the same time as being melancholy. And, wow. And I remember getting it. I just remember going like... Oh. Even at... Uh, so you remember at seven kind of understanding, you know, I, I remember understanding concept that, of like, yeah, the juxtaposition of... Yeah. And I, but I remember... I basically remember just kind of going, I get this, you know? Wow. Like, yeah. And I had friends who, who at that age were really great at sport. Um, and I had other friends who were like, you know, amazing academic kids, you know? We went to a school, we were in a composite class with like really gifted kids you know i wasn't one of those kids i was in the class with them 
and they were, you know, I remember them just being able to get stuff. And I remember my, my friend, one of my friends in particular, Dan was a really good sportsman and he could just, he just got sport, you know? Yeah. And I just got music, you know, I just got it. It was just, and it was a really refreshing feeling it was mm. to, to feel like this was something that I kind of understood. Um, and it just kicked off from then. And so I'd like, you know, we, we had one stereo system in our house and it was in the front room of our house. So we had to kind of book, book time to go and listen to music. And I just yeah. remember like going in and booking, you know, Thursday nights or whatever and, and going through my parents' record collection and going through from all the 70s singer-songwriters through to, you know, Black Sabbath and XTC and Zeppelin and everything. And just going like, I get this, you know. Mm. And, and it wasn't, it was just something that I just felt so connected to. And I'm, I'm sure so many people have this experience, which is why music is this personal thing where so many people even if they're not professional musicians, will say music is my life. Absolutely, you know? yeah, sure. Um, it was just that thing, and I just felt like I understood it. And then, and, I, and then, I, then I figured out that I could sing. When was at, that? When did you? It was around the same time. I was in choirs and stuff like that, and people kind of started at school. Yeah, and pegging me as a guy that could sing. You right. Know? And I got asked to be in a couple of um, school productions, things like that. And performing at that time was terrifying to me, but it was like as soon as I did it, I was also completely addicted. <laughs> It was from that age on, it was just, it was never, there was nothing ever else that I was going to do, you know? Mm. I did my first performance when I was 12 and I was hooked. And then, you know, like I remember... What was the performance? It was at, it was at my year six graduation concert. Right. And, okay. and we played these songs. So and, your last year of primary school before yeah. high school. And it was, so the first gig, and it was in front of probably 600 people and it yeah. was absolutely terrifying. <laughs> and I remember this girl, um, Angela... Angela? Angelique Cornelius. Angelique Cornelius. Was, was oh. like the, you know, the very prettiest girl in our year. Yeah. And she came up after the show and she was always lovely to me, but she never had looked at me in this right. particular way. Right, okay. And at the end of the show, I remember she was like, hey, that was really good. And I was like, this is what I'm going to do for the right. rest of my life. So, okay. So you were all, like you started that. It was about girls, yeah. Recognized. Yes. Some of that instant feedback. Yeah, right. it was about getting girls. Um, and your parents, like. What were their musical tastes? Would you, you know, you say you sort of, you know, had a record collection of theirs to rifle through. Would you describe your upbringing as, as a musical one? Like, tell us a little bit about your mum and dad and, and, and what, if any, influence they had. The, on, yeah, on they're that. definitely musical. My, my dad was, you know, in bands and stuff like that um, and was quite a good piano player, t absolutely awful singer, like terrible singer. <laughs> um, very, very bad singer. <laughs> And my mum my mum was a really good singer and you know good guitarist and you know I remember oh, them wow. playing music and stuff but they were, you know they were just people that liked music they weren't ever trying but to do it but they played instruments and they yeah yeah know, and we had we had instruments around the house and yeah, that's, you know, a music, that's pretty musical yeah yeah we're singing I mean you know Middle of the Hill is all about my early childhood and it references in that song you know singing harmonies with with mum mm. and we would definitely I like I have clear memories of doing the washing up with my sisters and yeah. singing um, Red Red Robin, you know, when yeah. the Red Red Robin goes on and doing it in rounds and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I mean, there was there was that in our lives, but it yeah. wasn't, um, there was no nobody in our lives that was a professional musician or anything like that. Mm. There wasn't a sort of, you know, implicit idea that this could be a career. <laughs> you know, dad was an architect, mum was a teacher. It wasn't like well, some somebody was a musician that we you know that I could kind of aspire to. It was just even a, it was when just you are, I mean, even when you are a, a career musician, it still seems like a kind of abstract. Oh, it is. I'm the. I'm the I mean, in my in my sort of more you know more 
I guess, you know, in my non-musical circle of friends, mm. I'm a completely the abnormal guy, mm. you know, like, but my kids, you know, like I've always tried to frame what I do in terms of a job, you know, I, don't, I yeah. try to not romanticize it. Mm. I describe it as going to work. Totally. You know, yeah, yeah, because I don't same. want them to idealize it in a in a way where it makes it, I love what I do and I, and I do think it is, I mean, it's like winning the lottery, becoming yeah. a professional musician, you know, you're doing what you love for a living you know yeah and if it's going well it's a it's a it's a great living yeah it's like you know like you know getting paid to do what you would do do as a hobby yeah anyway like in your free time and 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 that's the thing like when people ask me like what do you do for a hobby it's he is playing music like i have mates that live around here my friend dave is a good example we have this this funny psychedelic side project thing like he lives two blocks away and he rides his push bike over and comes into the studio where we are now and, and we record psychedelic rock jams because yep. that's what I like to do, you know? Like it's it's a it's what I it's the only thing I've ever really enjoyed doing, yeah. you know? So but I but I do wanna not uh romanticize it to my kids and, mm. and sort of say like and and because it's also fluky, you know, like you get a you get an opportunity and you have to work it extremely hard. But if you don't get that opportunity, it's you know, it's mm. just not gonna happen. And that, that happens to so many musicians. Mm. And I I reckon the best songwriter is sitting completely undiscovered in their bedroom writing amazing songs, you know. Mm. I'm I'm worried about like sort of framing this as a conventional career path that anybody can choose if they decide to be a musician because it just doesn't it doesn't work like that. Yeah, but I mean I guess it's like hard, you know, when it comes to kids like how do you sort of balance that between like teaching them that to to dream. <laughs> well, no, I think I mean I think it's I I think you just teach them to dream. <clears throat> my my oldest son you know wants to be what he says he wants to be is a robotics engineer and he's six you know <laughs> and but he doesn't know what that is yeah yeah well but, i guess he knows but kind of has an idea of what a robot is yeah and he likes he likes robots so wow but so i guess you know for, for that i say i mean it's that's our, probably you know i mean that's probably a growth industry i mean really <laughs> i, I I, I, now that I think about it, I'd be really encouraging that because moving into the future, robotics are going to become more and more of a feature of our day-to-day Let's lives. Let's face it, it's all about robotics, drones, and self-drive yeah. cars. I think that, that's a, that is a smart career choice. So, but, but at the same time, any career choice is something that you have to work for. So you can have yeah. a natural aptitude at it's, something, but yeah. you have to like fucking work real yeah. hard. And so that, I just that's the thing. That, that that is the element that I'm trying to kind of make as a common theme between what I do and, and what anybody other, does yeah. is that it doesn't really matter how good you are, you still have what to you do. work really, yeah. really hard, you know? Yeah. Um, I need to piss like so badly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is the first time, and I'm pretty new to the old podcast game. I think this is episode nine, but um, that's the first time we've stopped midway <laughs> at almost exactly the halfway point too uh, to go and do a piss. Yeah, you should or maybe that should be the new thing. Is like halfway through, you stop for a little wee little wee break. Yeah, yeah. And I've said I'm gonna you know find some uh, suitable music to insert in there. I guess what we often do in this podcast. Is Who's we when you say we? And the Bob I, Evans Industries. Oh right. right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, team. which yeah, is yeah. me. Yep. Um, no, what we? What my guest and I oh, do? Okay, got it. Yeah. 
What my guests and I do is we delve into the top 25 most played songs on their iTunes playlist. And the concept basically goes that, you know, the songs that appear on that playlist may come as a surprise to the, to the, to the very person who owns that playlist. You know, sometimes the songs will be songs that they don't... In fact, last, just on my last episode with Melody Poole, one of her most played songs... She didn't had never even heard before because really? her sister, <laughs> her, oh no, sorry, her cousin had like uh, used her computer for a while, and it was like a Panic at the Disco song, and so yeah. Well, that's that's I don't I don't really have uh, you know the equivalent happening on spot on uh, iTunes, but I I use Spotify a lot, and definitely a lot of my sort of most recently played artists are to do with. My wife, because we share a Spotify account. So, and I should say too, you know, at this point that um, Spotify does host the uh, Bob, uh, Good Evans It's a Bobcast official soundtrack where uh, oh. every episode, three songs that we talk about uh, from each episode gets added to this playlist. Wow, look um, at you, eh? Look so at if you, you want to check that out, please, uh, please do so. And also just because only 69 people follow it. And <laughs> All right, so let's have a little look into your... Uh, into your Spotify. All right. Uh, so, my, so but, but, uh, let me let me just. Whoa. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a number at you, Josh. Okay. And um, if you just think of like the first thing that appears on your list as number one, oh, going yeah. down, um, I'll throw a number at you. I want you to find that, and we'll we'll go from there. Okay. Okay. All right. I'm feeling number uh, number seven. Let's go number seven. So one, two, three, four, five, six. Seven. Oh, so interestingly enough, the number seven is Boy and Bear. Oh, right. Okay. Australian. Um, Australian, yeah. And good mates of mine. Yeah. And we have the same management and, um, yeah, they're legends. And, uh, yeah, so I guess they're the seventh most recently played artists on tell, my... Tell on me my... about how you came across Boy and Bear, not just as, as musicians, but like, as, like you said, as people that you know. Well, it's, it's actually... a cool thing it's like uh you know sydney's a small place but years ago my manager greg had an assistant young guy 21 year old guy called killian who ended up being right killian from boy and bear Bear, so he was he was my manager's assistant so killian would like answer the phones and i'd call him up and i'd get him to do stuff and he would drive me around and stuff and i remember having this conversation with him in the car one time he was driving me from somewhere to somewhere and uh, and he was like, yeah, I'm in this band as well. We're called Boy and Bear. And you know, my, I, he was. I remember him saying something like, yeah, my parents are a bit worried about it because I'm, you know, I'm taking it seriously. And I was like, dude, you're like, you're 21. Just yeah. even if you try your absolute hardest until you're 30, and then decide that it's not working yeah. for you, yeah, that's, that's still that's, okay. You, that's still fine. Yeah, yeah. And he was like, yeah, cool, cool. And then um, you know, and then they went on to become Boy and Bear, one of the biggest bands in Australia. Yeah. Uh, and they're great. I love love them all. I think they're great dudes and and champions i think um i was i was at the aria awards you probably were as well when they won a bunch oh yeah they won like five yeah i was there that year they totally cleaned up yeah it was great i mean i just they're just like they're i caught up with tim the other night out of drinks for our mutual friend and it was just they're they're doing it the right way they're working their asses off they're they're every time they're not on tour here they're on tour overseas and Mm. yeah they're good they're just good Good people. So, is there a, is there a Boy and Bear song that you would uh, single out as you know being a particular favourite or having any kind of special meaning? Uh, pro- not not necessarily special meaning and stuff, but definitely I, I do have a, a moment when when they released Feeding Line, which was their kind of big single from a couple of albums ago, and I just remember 
when when that came out, I heard it. I was living in Bronte at the time, and I had the radio on at home. And I just remember that radio, that song coming on. I was like, ah, oh, fuck, this is going to do the business, you know? Like, this yeah, is wow. this is going to kick off now. And they were doing great before that, but this was it was like next level. Was that off their first album or second album? No, it would have been. I think it was on their second. I'm not. I'm right. not. Not 100 sure, but yeah. No, and I remember like you know. Um, I think it was make you happy. No, no, no. Sorry, it was no one wants a lover. Was this, was out at the same time, and it was they were both. Which on Sugar you know, at the same for our time. listeners that don't know, was the single that was the single of my third, third album. album. Yeah. And I remember, like, I remember literally, like, driving past each other in cars in these back streets of Glebe, <laughs> just randomly seeing them because they were doing a film clip or something, and I was coming from some media thing, and like, we stopped in the middle of the road, and we we're like, going, "Hey, great single! Hey, great single!" <laughs> <laughs> Basically, drove on. <laughs> wow. That's how, that's how it happens. That city. was a moment in Australian rock and roll musical history. Yeah, but they're great. The day them. when you and Boy and Bear crossed paths in your cars. In our cars. Like high-fived each other. Yeah, and I've got to say, at that point, my car was heaps better than their car. <laughs> it's probably not anymore, but yeah. So they were shooting a clip. Did you appear? You, you might have even had a moment where you could have been in the clip. No, I wasn't in the clip. No. <laughs> no, that would have been a good... Yeah. Let's talk. About, I want to actually, you know, segue into clips because, oh, um, oh. well, you oh. know, video clips. I mean, oh, I've never, God. I've never talked to um, any of my guests They're about the bane making of my existence. music videos before. Which, and I think it's about time we talked about it because it's something that you know we're all um, required to do mm. um, when we put out music. Sometimes I think about making videos and it's just it can be a really ridiculous thing i mean there have been times where i've been making a video and i've been more so with jebedi i suppose than bob evans but jumping around oh, yeah, with a like, guitar yeah. miming with a kilt song. on playing yeah, the, yeah I remember and just that. thinking like what the fuck yeah. am i doing like what what yeah. this is ridiculous um are there any moments for you that uh, where, where you've made a video clip or any moments that stand out to you as being funny or weird? oh there's lots i mean you know Early on, we did animated clips for Middle of the Hill and Private Education, and that was they were still they are still my you know two of my favorite clips. And I had a really good run with clips, so I did those two, um, and I did you know the the guitar boat one, which was that was a big right, clip. That was you know. for Make You Happy. Yeah, that was for Make You Happy. And that was a big clip, and that was that was a big production. You know, like we built a boat for it. That was in those days, and I drove that boat. It was a real boat. We drove that boat around Sydney Harbour. Who made the boat? Boat builders, like proper boat builders, made the and, boat. But it was like made like a made like a maiden. It looked exactly like. So a So did maiden guitar. have anything to do? with Yeah, that? yeah. I think they chipped in some okay. some cash for it and right. stuff. Because it was kind of a big advertisement. Yeah, it was a it was a perfect replica of a maiden yeah. guitar. And, and you was, and you you're cruising around Sydney Harbour by memory. Sydney Harbour, but around Balmain where I grew up, and I'd spent I've spent countless hours on that harbour in in friends' boats. Growing up, like we all had little, I didn't, but we, my friends had little aluminium dinghies, yeah, you know, little yeah. 10 foot aluminium dinghies with little, you know, 25 horsepower engines yeah, on them. Yeah. We'd go, you know, up Parramatta River and smoke weed and, you know, it was <laughs> yeah. great. So it was kind of cool, like doing that around that same area, like literally yeah. where I grew up, you know. Yeah. Um, but it was also trying. And it was, it's, this is the thing that I've discovered about clips is that you have these ideas and you're like, this is going to be amazing. This is going to mm. be so much fun. And then, you know, three hours into the clip, you're out on the harbour and the director wouldn't let me wear sunglasses because I didn't look good. So it's like, you yeah. know, burning my retinas and the, the I couldn't have a cushion to sit on because it didn't look good in the clip. So I was like, my ass was just, my bony ass was bouncing up and yeah, down yeah. On, the, on the boat. 
and so you know like that's two hours in and then five hours in and eight hours and you're like oh my god yeah somebody kill me so you spent the entire day and it was a, it was two days out on the, um, two out days the yeah yeah it was they were sunny days too yeah yeah it was it was good but i mean it was you know it's a first world problem don't get me wrong i know that it was quite trying yeah um but the clip was really successful yeah. the, the problem is when you do clips that the conditions are also really trying and the clip turns out like a fucking piece right. of shit. Right, okay. And that's also happened to me. And I had this experience with The World as a Picture um, from my third album. We were going to do this clip and like the idea that was pitched by the director was to do a similar uh, kind effect. of effect as Limitless, the Limitless Zoom from the film Limitless. limitless? <laughs> yeah, Limitless. Yeah. Uh, so if anybody never ending zoom. Yeah, never ending zooms. And yeah. it's like really, it's... It, I think it I, remember. Cool. Yeah, I remember. It was a cool, it was a cool idea, you yeah, know? yeah. I get it. I got it. And I, but I had all uh, me and the label had these discussions with the director saying like, are you sure you can pull this off? You know, like, can you actually get this happening? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. So he had like drones, you know, like helicopter drones with cameras on it. We went out to this big um, open site out near sort of Windsor. We had the whole place to ourselves. Yeah. Well, like I had to do all these things, you know, like running and jumping and stuff. And the, and the, the, the drone was filming from above. And I just sort of, got the feeling during the shoot that it just wasn't it wasn't gonna work wow and then a couple of weeks later i was like so you know, <laughs> we got, any, got, any, got anything to say got, got anything to see sorry <laughs> and the guy sent he sent through a, a mock like a, an, a first edit of the clip and it, there was no limitless zoom oh, no. features in it so it was essentially the whole clip was based around that effect you, if you take that effect away it's just me kind of being in various like uninteresting spaces in this in this kind of <laughs> rural area near Windsor. Um, and and the label and I were like, well, this isn't Limitless Zoom. Like, where's the Limitless Zoom? And he's like, and he, eventually he was like, yeah, I can't, I can't I couldn't do, it. do it. You know, I couldn't do it. wasn't Limitless a movie about a guy who got onto some kind of drug? Yeah, that, and he became extremely and intelligent. Basically, so it kind of sounds like maybe like, you know, he was... He, <laughs> he thought he'd taken the drug, but he, he hadn't. Thought, yeah. He thought he'd taken the drug, and it was just like, ah, no, this isn't working. But but now, whenever I've whenever I do a film clip, I tell that story to the director, and I say, I don't want limitless zoom. Like if you can't if you can't deliver limitless yeah. zoom or the equivalent of, I don't want to do it. And I and I drill them on it during the shoot. And I'm like, <laughs> is this is this limitless zoom? Are you, are you fucking limitless zooming me right now? Like, you know, can you actually pull this off? And it has become a thing. Like, so Jeff and James, who's done a bunch of clips for me, he, he said, yeah, I saw him the other night and he was like, in my in his mind, whenever he's doing a clip now, he has limitless in the back of his mind zoom. me saying, limitless zoom. You, know? <laughs> you have to pull, if you're going to promise something, you have to pull it off. You can't just fucking, you can't not, you can't not do it. <laughs> All right, let's go to another, uh, another, uh, selection from oh. your spotify list um let's go number what was the last one seven let's 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 go number four all right so number four is oh number four is actually youth group wow another australian band yeah now, oh. and, and again this is most recently played artists this is not necessarily most most often played yeah. but i i was playing these guys recently because um i ran into cameron who was the guitarist in the in the band and his, he lives around near where I live and he's now a full-time uh, staff member at Rolling Stone. Oh, wow. And, um, and he has kids similar age and we, we actually were at a joint birthday party for some kids, some kids <laughs> who had mutual friends. You know, we were talking about they'd done some recent shows with Youth Group 
And so I went home and played youth group and remembered, you know, the band, but also the experiences that I had with them, which they were the sort of one of the first signings to Ivy League Records who I eventually signed to. And one of my first, you know, a bunch of my first tours and shows were with those guys. And they had some monstrous hits. And I, like I remember playing shows with them in LA and New York and, you know, great guys, really intelligent guys. And yeah, so a lot of, lot of good memories there and listening back to the music for them, of them, was just like a trip down memory lane. Like I remember, I remember these shows in LA in particular. Like I remember, you know, playing this show in LA. I'd never been there before, and this guy telling me that he'd driven four hours to see my show. You know, and stuff like that. Yeah, as a as a small as a artist from Australia, like just a, yeah. just a guy. You know, that shit fucking blows your mind. You know, like that is that is global. You know, that's not just a guy in Canberra that's driven from Goulburn, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So yeah, I've got a a lot of great memories about youth group and yeah. Is there a song? Um, (laughs) We'll be right back in just one moment. Um, Josh has gone into (laughs) some kind of uh, seizure. I've gone into a connection. (laughs) Um, Well, this is not at all my favorite uh, youth group song at all but they did a great job of it but this is forever young okay, right? yeah. so that's the one everybody the, knows that's right and that was their that was a real breakthrough song for them right yeah. i mean that but the, gave but prior to that prior to that album they had a, an album called skeleton jar and the song yeah. skeleton jar is a great song yeah um so like that's a, a classic sydney indie rock album um and forever young was was a you know a, a number one hit for them and it's still you know it still gets played i still hear it yeah. around and and you know now there's covers of of that cover of that you know cover I mean? yeah it's amazing right um so it was a pretty it was a crazy phenomenon for them i remember yeah. you telling me a story about how the that the video clip for that was made actually just going back to a video clip conversation mm-hmm. before can you remember yeah so andy castle story? who's the the anr guy at ivy league one of the co-owners who actually used to play bass in youth group and then became and then started ivy league signed youth group um, and and it was, I think it was his idea maybe even to cover that song, for them to cover that song. But he just went to the ABC and got um, archive footage of like 60s, oh no, no, not 60s, maybe like 70s, eight, 70s, 70s, 80s, 80s skaters. Um, and where were they? Like in the beaches of Yeah, around New the South beaches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of, I guess like around Narrabeen and stuff like that. Yeah. And it was just this iconic feel you know and mm. I mean, it's, it's a brilliant clip mm, fantastic uh, yeah. and he just got an editor to do it he you know and yeah so it was i mean that that's an example of a great clip but that would have cost almost nothing uh and that was a really effective clip and then there's you know clips that i've made that have cost twenty thousand dollars just yeah you know i reckon you know my mom i think my mom's probably watched them but you know, that's, <laughs> that's about it and yeah that clip was just all kids skating down this hill I mean, it just perfectly... It's just nostalgia, you know? Like it's, exactly. It's, and the imagery just perfectly suited the song. It's there one was of those no things. sense of the band at all. No, but it's the power of nostalgia. And I think that's... Mm. You know, like, I think we all kind of have experienced... I mean, I think with your song, don't you, you, know, don't you think it's time? Um, if that's, that's one of your songs, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and also Middle of the Hill for me, it's a, there's a sense of nostalgia in those songs and in a lot of songs that, you know touch a lot of people because mm. i think you know there are certain things that are universal and and that kind of nostalgic thing and and you know longing or yearning or just reflecting on previous times is is something that everybody does and mm. definitely that track by youth group just captured that it was not even their track you know but i've heard the original and it's 
It's definitely a, it's better than the original. Let's talk about nostalgia because, you know, I have a kind of, I don't know, I have a changing relationship with the concept of nostalgia. Obviously, you know, like you've said, it's, you know, people are, there are, you know, people that are drawn to it. But as an artist, as a, from an artistic point of view, you know, like how much nostalgia is, is, is too much? Like where do you draw the line? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a good question to ask as an, as an artist because, you know. You always want to be looking forward. Yeah, right? you, you always want to be looking forward. And I, th- and I always have and I think that's really important to do. But I do also think that at some point it's completely reasonable and almost appropriate to kind of consolidate everything that you've done and kind of put a put a bookmark, you know, there to be like, this is where I'm at right now. This is what I've done. And looking looking ahead, I want to do some different things. But in order to kind of reframe the things that I'm going to do, I need to consolidate these things so that everybody knows what I've done mm. and, who, and who I am kind of thing. Mm. Um, I do think it's important. And, and you know, best of, you know, I'm, I'm hoping and planning to do a best of next year. And I think you know there's a there's a kind of couple of interpretations of the best of thing where where some people are like it's like it's sort of you know a bit of a distasteful thing cashing in on on you know what you've done, but I I really want to think of it as a celebration, and like I say a bookmark kind of like a almost like a closing of a chapter saying like yeah it's been ten almost twelve it's been twelve years pretty much of releasing you know consistently releasing stuff, mm. and the industry has changed you know so fucking much since you know since i've been involved and you know you've been in, in, involved twice as long as i have so i mean when you when you started the internet oh mate we were um the, the internet didn't exist oh, it's, mate, we had to rub two stones together just to you to know make a record start making a record <laughs> well, there was no electricity enough the first studio we made a record in yeah so what'd you do you just well we had just a guy rubbing sticks together just to spark a bit of a fire and that you know and then what did that do? Fired up, well, it set fire to the whole fucking building, actually. Yeah, right. And um, no, but our first record we met on tape, and even that, you know, in itself. Is that actually true? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it's like the way it was recorded to tape. There yeah. was no Pro Tools. Or, yeah, yeah. So that's so. But but the point is, you know, for me, ten years, twelve years, it's been a hell of a ride. And you know, personally and professionally, it's been, it's been confronting. It's been exciting. It's been you know, successful, it's been, you know, unsuccessful. It's, it's, I've, I've, I've hit ceilings, I've busted ceilings, I've hit other ceilings. You know, it's, it's, it's been a massive roller coaster, and I mm. want to celebrate that so that I can kind of, you know, put what I've done in a, in the, in, into some kind of context so that I can yeah. move on, you know. Yeah. It's kind of, it's, it's, it's almost more for me than anybody else. It's like, I just, I want to, I want to be able to kind of, I mean, as you, you, I'm sure you would be able, be able to relate, and maybe it's the same in any life and in any profession. But the last twelve years have been a complete fucking blur, you know. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I've done probably, you know, in that time, we've I've probably done, you know, I, I would have I would have done over a thousand shows, and I've played, you know, I've toured the UK like fourteen times or something, and played all over the world and done so many festivals and solo shows and band shows and stuff. And it's a blur, you know, and mm. so much promo just spent fucking talking about yourself and it completely does your head in after a while. And I just kind of feel like at this point, I just want to take stock of everything I've done and reflect on it and then put it into some kind of cohesive context and then be able to move, move on and, yeah. and do whatever comes next. Yeah. Know? 
And yeah, like, I mean, we did a similar thing with Jibbutai last year. We did a 20th anniversary thing and it was fucking awesome. Mm. It was so great. I mean, there was an element of it that was kind of like healing as well because, you know, for a lot of years after Slightly Odd Way, even though it was like almost, it's still to this day, the most popular thing I've, that I've ever done and probably ever will do. Um, but for a long time, I, I had an awkward kind of relationship with that record. You know, it was kind of like a, an awkward photo of my teenage years you know and every time I looked at it it was like ah, I'm such a dork but that was like a really great moment of like embracing you know for me and for the other guys I think to a, to a certain extent too embracing our past you know and and celebrating our past and and the fact that people responded to it so well was so affirming yeah you I think know? I think the thing about celebrating your past is when you I mean, it's it's not a it's not good, but the bottom line is, and and again, maybe this is in any career, but definitely in music, you, you often don't celebrate the present. You know, like I, mm. I've I've won Aria awards and you know like had gold records, and I remember like, I oh, fuck I remember like when the second record went gold, I was house sitting my parents in law's house. You know, and I caught the bus to my gold record dinner. You know, <laughs> um, I caught the bus down there and. You know, it didn't feel celebratory. Sure. You just, you just kind of, I just kind of did it, and then I went back on the road and and kept on pushing. And it's 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 really it's sometimes only in retrospect that you get the chance to actually celebrate these things. It's, yeah, it's true. Um, and I'm not in any way complaining, but it's just like at the no. time when you're doing, you're so in the moment, you're yeah. you're doing these things, and you know, any job, any job where you're trying to balance life and work is a struggle. And so yeah. when you're when you're in those moments, you're often focusing on the, you know, for better or worse, you're, you're kind of more focused on the struggle and the celebration. Yeah. It's really only in retrospect that you get to look back and go, actually, this was a big achievement. This is a big thing. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to, to that and I'm looking forward to, to it in, a, in, a, in the sense of, you know, having hindsight and being able to go, actually, it's like, this, throwing, this a, it's a, like throwing a birthday party. Yeah, it's like... Where you invite exactly. and you're inviting your, your mates to celebrate the fact that you've just turned fucking, you know... 40 or whatever. What, yeah, exactly. And everybody Whatever, whatever gets it is, to, we're about to turn. <laughs> yeah, and you and all your mates get to celebrate that. And it's, you know, yeah. it, it, can, that, you know it can be a lot of fun. Um, okay, let's do one more. Mm. And we may as well go to your number one. Oh, my number what one... comes in at number one? My number one is The Shins. Oh, great. Yeah, I'm not surprised to see the shins on here. I've always known you as being a bit of a shins fan. What was your... How did you discover the shins? Um, was well, it in the movie? No, it wasn't. But, but, I, but I pretty much had that, that... I had that experience that they had with that song, <laughs> but like four years before the movie came out. So a friend of mine, James Lees, um, this English guy's a filmmaker, uh, and he's he did the Forever Song film clip, um, but he's done a couple of... Uh, passenger clips he did a awesome block party clip and he actually did a the clip for one republic that's like been shown a billion times oh wow so long story short james years ago i was on holidays in byron bay with a bunch of mates of mine you know summer holidays kind of thing and we met this group of um english backpacking girls as you do and we became great mates. <clears throat> and one of them, Charlie, was at the time going out with this guy, James. And so we like we talked to him on the phone a couple of times because they were hanging out with us in Byron. And um, and then eventually we, we all stayed in touch and Charlie and James moved to Sydney. Right. And so I'd stayed in touch with Charlie and so she moved into the street that I was living in. Yeah. And they lived in an, in, a, in an apartment down the road. And there's a song that I have on one of my early 
uh, EPs or demos or something called Unit 11 <clears throat> that some people might know. It's very obscure, but that song is completely they lived in unit 11 yeah and we just spent this you know a couple of years that they lived here of just like hanging out like every day it was i basically lived with them and um you know i'd go down and we'd just you know drink and smoke weed down at his yeah. house and, and charlie's house and we became awesome mates and then they moved back to england and i stayed in touch but like so in the last year that they were here my career started to kick off and i remember you know going on a camping trip with them and driving in two separate cars and Kids Don't Sell Their Hope So Fast came on the radio. And I remember yeah. like, you know, fist pumping in the air and looking back and they were, they were listening to Triple J at the same time. <laughs> like, they were like honking the horns and stuff. So they're, they're very, and he in particular is very associated with the the kind of rise of my career. And then when I got signed to Ireland, you know, I started touring the UK and James was living in the UK at the time and he was he's, he's a filmmaker and he used to come on tour with me. So I'd, I had a camera and I'd give him the camera and he'd just come on tour and, and crash in our hotel rooms wow. and, and yeah. jump in the van and he'd film everything. And so he made the Forever Song film clip because he just had all this footage. And I've, I've got like hours of footage from those tours that I that I would like to do something with potentially for this best of. Yeah, thing. absolutely. Uh, anyway, so he's he went on to become a really successful filmmaker um, and um, what, the, what the fuck were we talking about? <laughs> So he went on to become a successful. So this is so this is going back to the shins. Oh, the right? shins. Okay, yeah. yeah. So so anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he so when he came back to Australia one time, and me and James and my friend Will went down to a beach house, and we we spent a weekend there, and we got really really drunk. And James had this sub pop um, right. sampler, so like a free sampler, and it had new slang on it. Ah, and right. He, so he said to me. You've got to You're listen to this song. Kidding. This song is going to change your life. Which is exactly what, Which is what happened in, in the movie. Garden, like in the movie for... Garden State. And like, this movie has actually, this is the second time this movie has been mentioned uh, on this podcast. Because when I spoke to Tom Ballard, we, we talked about this. But yeah, for anybody listening who hasn't seen the movie Garden State, there's this really famous scene where Zach Braff and Natalie Portman are in this like waiting room yeah. of like a hospital or something. Uh, I don't know. I can't remember. Uh, and they first meet and, and Natalie Portman's character tells Zach Braff pretty much what this, you just This said. song is going to change your life. Yeah, and she puts the headphones over his head and he all of a sudden the you know. new slang comes on and he has this really intense moment. Yeah. yeah. So I had that moment with my, my friend James and he, he was like, this song is going to change your life. It's a band called The Shins. And I put it on and I was like, oh, fuck, this has changed my life. And it really did inform kind of particularly lyrically where what i wanted to do yeah yeah musically like I, I you know i listened to james mercer's lyrics and it's they're obscure they're obtuse but they you get so much out of them and i yeah. and i wanted to you know that kind of fitted with what i was trying to do and it gave me confidence yeah. to kind of yeah. pursue it further and then a few years later i was on a i actually was on a a, a songwriting panel with him like a, a, a speaking like a speaking gig where he and I were on this panel together and I was yeah. like, fuck, this is amazing. Like this is, this has happened. So cool. And then another year later I was playing at Splendor and at this after party, I found myself boot scooting, like literally boot scooting with James Mercer and <laughs> you know, like just dancing with James Mercer and, um, and you know, never seen him since, but, <laughs> um, but in terms of bands that have, you know, changed my kind of musical direction mm. or, or if not changed, affirmed my musical direction, the shins mm. definitely a big one. Yeah. Um, I want to also touch on your involvement with um, 
Indigenous Literacy Project? Um, the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. Oh, okay. The ILF. I guess I want to talk to you a little bit about like why you're involved and, and, and what you feel passionate about, you know, with that, with um, that foundation. I studied, um, there was a, a topic called general studies that I did in year 12. Yep. And general studies. Yeah, and it was a bit of a bludge. Like that's what I, oh. that's why I chose it, you know, because it was, it was low pressure. But as part of it, part of the course was indigenous studies. Mm. And I, and I, and I, you know, I mean, it's not like my parents were totally, you know, they're like liberal people, like as in little L liberal yeah. people, um, very, you know, compassionate people. Definitely. I was raised to not be, not not engage in racism or anything like that everyone's equal but when i was learning about you know the the gap that there exists between in the indigenous population and the rest of us and also just the shit that they had to go through from colonialization and then reading you know books like blood on the waddle and stuff like that i just was outraged i was mm. just completely outraged i was like this is Fucking bullshit, you know. But I've I've never known. I never knew what could be done. I never never was in a position to do anything anyway. And then I just remember like when I was quite, you know, things were going really well for me. And I remember like I was playing at South by Southwest in Texas, and I was staying in the Hilton, you know, like right in the middle of town. It was like this dope hotel room, and everything was going great. And I was like, this is like this is all great, but I just. I just felt something felt wrong about it or not wrong, but I just felt like it's not like I didn't think that I deserved it, but I just felt like I was at a point where I felt like I needed to give something back or, yeah. or it would all go to shit or something. It was like, I just felt like karma was, I needed to contribute back to karma. Um, and so I was talking to my girlfriend at the time who is now my wife and she worked in the publishing industry at the time. And the ILF was started by people within the publishing industry and she was telling me about it in terms of just raising literacy. It was a simple agenda. I'm <clears throat> completely atheist. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in missionary things. I don't believe in like trying to, you know, improve things for people, but with the agenda that you need to believe in God and convert sure. to God and stuff like that. So it was really important to me that it wasn't, wasn't that kind of thing. Non-denominational. Uh, yeah, yeah, non-denominational. So the ILF has a super simple agenda of just delivering books into remote regional, um, you know, remote indigenous communities, communities to raise yeah. literacy levels. Yeah. And you want to raise literacy levels to allow for self-determination. So it's not about yeah. saying you need to engage in giving. The, the broader white world. Yeah. It's just like giving people but choices. Opportunities yeah. to make choices. So if they want to do it, they can. Um, it's always done with the permission of the, and the encouragement of the elders of the, yeah. of the, you know, communities. And it's to, you know, it's to increase literacy levels to not just for like, to be able to go to uni or read books to escape, but to like be able to fill out forms, mm. you know, for medical, you know, like for medical rebates and stuff like that, to read instructions on, on you know, on medicine and stuff like yeah. that. So it's really important and it's really a simple quantifiable, you know, thing to do. So I, I wanted to get involved in it and I just put my hand up and said, you know, I've got a profile right now. I don't know how long it's going to last, but I've got a profile now. I can raise money for you. I'll, I'll become an ambassador. So I did and I started an event called Busking for Change and I had a, a mission to raise 50 grand for them. And so over four years, we raised 50 grand for them. And and I'm still an ambassador and now we've just released this 
single to raise money for them and it's kind of the theme song with well, Justine us, Clark. Yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, so Justine Clark is also an ambassador for the ILF and we met through that obviously. And, and people would know Justine from her work. Well, they the first time I ever saw Justine Clark was when she was on... Home, home and Away. away. Yeah. Yeah, Rue. She, Rue, she Rue from Home right. and Away. Yeah, me too. Well, but no, the more... first time I saw Justine Clark was in Mad Max. Oh, no she, shit. She's one really? of the little, one of the little um, bush... Desert kids. No yeah, way. Yeah, totally. And she looks exactly the same as You're well. You're kidding. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. So she's in that. So she's a legend. And, and now she works, she does ABC. She she does. Yeah, a she's a, kids stuff. a kids singer, a kids performer. Yep. She's on Play School. She's also, a, you know, a very serious actress as well. Yep. Uh, so she's a ambassador as well. And the ILF had been approaching me for a while about writing a song for the ILF. And I just could never figure out a way to make it not cheesy and kind of too sincere or something. Right as an adult track, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, And then when Justine became an ambassador, I was like, ah, oh, this makes sense. Let's do it as a kid's song, you know? Because like, that's essentially who we're, you know, trying right. to influence, you know? Yeah. Um, and it was from there, it was just really easy. We just got together and wrote the song with an a, a indigenous woman called um, uh, Deborah Cheatham, and she is also an ambassador. She's a soprano and actress and, you know, a, a mentor and teacher and stuff like that. So we went to a school, an indigenous school in the city and, you know, talked to the kids and ran them through what we were doing. Basically did a workshop and got their opinions on like what they wanted to, what they would want to say about right. this issue of literacy and, and yeah. just, you know, the, it's literacy is a pretty broad yeah. thing to talk about, but that was, we got great insight from them and I had a, I already had a framework for the song so that it wouldn't just kind of fall to shit, which often happens when you're doing workshops with kids. <laughs> no disrespect Bless to kids. Them. Yeah. That's just yeah. the way it is, yeah. you know. And then, so we wrote the song and then Justin and I refined it and, and turned it into a proper song. And then I recorded it here in my studio where we are now. And yeah, and that's it. And so now it's out and it's actually the number one kid song at the moment on, on the iTunes charts. Is there anything that you can think of when it comes to the way that music has influenced you, that's changed you in a way that's turned you into the kind of the, the adult Josh Pike that you mm. are today? I think the biggest thing is just it's allowed me to pursue <clears throat> I mean, it's hard to explain but it's, it's allowed me to pursue a version of myself that i knew existed but but that i hadn't had the opportunity to pursue mm. you know so before i mean you know for you, you you became a professional musician shortly after high school you know um and then that was your thing but for me like i was pursuing it you know like i wanted to do the i wanted to be a professional musician and in, in my mind that's what was going to happen you know no matter what but the reality is I was working at, I was a truck driver. I worked at a car wash. I worked um, at a venue being a, uh, like a roadie for other bands. Um, I did a lot of shit jobs, you know. And, and, and so when you do that, you know, it didn't, nothing happened to me for me musically until I was 26, 27. So that's yeah. almost a full 10 years out of high school. So after the first few years of doing all this other stuff, which was enabling me to continue to make demos and stuff like that, but it wasn't helping me become a musician. You begin to believe that that is, that is you, that is the version mm. of you, which was not, was not what I wanted to be. So you begin to think of yourself as a failure, basically. Mm. But I never gave up. And when it, when it started to kick off for me, it allowed me to finally pursue this version of myself that I always knew existed, but just hadn't had the chance to, you know, I, I just knew, you know, like there was... And there's songs, you know, like there's songs that I wrote in my first band with lyrics that say like, you know, 
if you give me this opportunity, I'll work it. I will work it well. You know, it's like I just wanted a fucking opportunity, yeah. and I knew that if I got the opportunity, I would do it right. Yeah. But I was just waiting for the opportunity, you know, and it wasn't forthcoming. For for years, I'd had this idea that at some point my real life was going to take off, and it really felt like when when music started kicking off, and it was pretty much at the same time that I met my now wife, and it was pretty much at the same time that Triple J started playing. Uh, you know, I guess kids, you know. All those things kind of happen at the same yeah. time. And I just kind of felt like, ah, this is it. This and is my real life. And you said to your parents, like, so this is what yeah, and this is, feeling so this, happy. This is what feeling happy felt like. <laughs> and it was just like, I'd just been fucking walking through this, you know, this quagmire of of, of just effort, you know. Mm. And I, I mean, I had some amazing times during that period, you know, no doubt. Like I had great times and, and, and good experiences. But it was always like, I was, I was always kind of like, I want, at some point, my real life is going to take off. And when it did, I felt like I was able to finally, you know, be the person that I had wanted to be for years and pursue the things, not just, you know, not just musically, but just pursue, you know, advocating for things that I wanted to advocate mm. for, things that were important to me. And I always felt like I had something to say, but I yeah. just but I just didn't feel like I had a platform to, to say it, you know, musically or, or otherwise. The big thing for me with music is that it allowed me to be the person that I thought that I thought I was, but that nobody else would have thought of me as, you know? Yeah. That's awesome. That's really brilliant. All right. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, man. Cheers. See ya. Ha <laughs> <laughs>